Hey, this is Travis Bennett, the pastor here at Arena of Life Church, and I just want to welcome you to our podcast. I pray this builds your faith, encourages you, and brings you to newer levels in Christ. Enjoy the message. What what we're supposed to say tonight. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. And can I, ha- I can have what it says I can have. I'm about to be taught from the incorruptible seed of the Word of God. And I will never be the same again. Amen. Y'all believe that? I know you do. Praise the Lord. Well, you know, I want to do something else before I get into anything else. I want to just, just come to mind a while ago. I want to make this declaration over you, if you don't mind out of uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verses 8. I declare this over you. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. I want the life of Jesus in my body, don't y'all? And I'm tired of this sickness. I don't know about y'all, but I've been battling it all week. And so I, if I run out of voice, well, I'll try to do it with sign language. I don't know. Y'all may not understand it, but we'll, we'll go for it. Or Pastor Travis will take over in that regard. Hey, I, I just, before we start on this tonight, we're going to talk about the Feast of uh, Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost. And I looked around. I didn't see anybody that took Pastor Travis up on his recommendation, you know, that you come up here with a big hairdo. Any, any big hairdos tonight? I didn't see any. I was going to, you know, be good. But the main thing is, I'm glad you didn't bring your snake for when we're talking about Pentecost, you know. I looked for mine, but I think he hibernated, so I didn't bring him. So anyway, glad y'all didn't bring one. So let's get started in, in uh, what we got the offer up tonight. <laughs> Now, well, I didn't want to offend anybody. No makeup. That's, that gets to be a little touchy. <laughs> Could have said no makeup and long dresses and all kinds of other things, you know. But anyway, here we go. Let's review what, we, what we've gone through so far up to this point, at least the last three feasts. The first three feasts we have studied, Passover, Unleavened Bread, and First Fruits revealed, in, revealed to us God's pattern for redemption for us in the sacrificial lamb. And this, of course, was in the person of Jesus Christ and his death burial, and resurrection. Like we said before, God teaches in many cases with visual, using visual aids. What better picture of the plan can we have as the Passover, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, unleavened bread, the sinless Son of Man, the true bread from heaven, broken and punished for all the sins of all mankind, for, and first fruits, he is risen. Jesus, who died for us, raised again as the firstborn from the dead, God's acceptance of him and his works the promise of our future resurrection. This is the gospel message, and this is the good news. Remember one of the descriptions that the prophet Isaiah gave to us about Jesus, in which we read every Christmas. I I suppose most of you read this, but I mean a lot of us read this because it refers to uh, Jesus being born. But Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, <coughs> Prince of Peace. We see Prince of Peace as one of the descriptors given in this passage about the coming Messiah. This title is significant because when we have properly appropriated Jesus 
as our Passover lamb who died for our sins. Then we find peace with God. This is part of the good news. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom, meaning completeness, soundness, welfare, and peace. Shalom is the greeting all Jews, is the greeting all Jews, or at least the Orthodox ones, gives to each other when they meet and when they say goodbye. In other words, when they meet another Jew, they say shalom. When they leave, they say shalom. So I guess you're greeting them coming and going that way. So there you have the blessing coming and going. You're blessed coming in, you're blessed going out. The Apostle Paul wrote about that peace many times, and let's look what he says in the book of Romans in a couple of scriptures. Romans 5.1, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then back down in Romans 5.10, he says this, For if, we, if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. See, because of our new position, which means relationship and justification, our ongoing condition, which is set apart from sin and the sanctification process, and our ultimate consecration, resurrection and the harvest to come, these three spring feasts have taught us to find how to find the peace of God. What is the peace of God? Nothing more than right relationship with him. Can you have peace if you don't have a right relationship with God? I don't think so. If you leave with nothing else about these three feasts, the one thing we want to remember is that through Jesus, the Prince of Peace, and his work on the cross, we as believers now have peace with God because we have been reconciled to him through Jesus. Our relationship with God is now one of peace and fellowship instead of one of hostility and separation. Remember, we are at peace with God. What a wonderful position to be in. Would you all agree? I wouldn't want it any other way. So now we're going to go into the to the fourth feast, the Feast of Weeks. It's also known as the Feast of Pentecost, and we'll talk about how we got to the, what we, why we call it that and, and that a little later. But uh, as we've talked about before, three times a year, all the Jewish males of age, and that was like at 12 years of old, they become, at, at 12 years of old uh, age, all Jews become what they call a son of, law, of the law. In other words, they're, they're responsible. They become adults at that point and they're responsible for observation of the law and keeping the law. And all the Jewish males of age were required to make a, pilgrim, make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year. The first one was, of course, the Passover season, which we just finished studying. And then the second time was for the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. The last pilgrimage would be for the Feast of Tabernacles, which that's coming down the road. <clears throat> the Hebrew rendering for this Feast of Weeks is Shavuot, this word literally means a period of seven. That could be days or years. In, in, the, in this case, in the case of this feast or Moed, uh, appointed time, it means weeks, uh, a period of seven weeks, actually. But the actual word shavu, shavu means seven. Shavuot means uh, weeks. <clears throat> so let's read our scripture text, and this is one of uh, this is our our our, uh, our text for. Uh, what, what we come off of here, become more, and this will become more obvious and pertinent to you as we read this text in uh, 20, Leviticus 23, 15 through 22. And listen for certain uh, things in here that you need to hear. Uh, I'll tell you as we go. And you should count for, your, for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf, the omer, remember we talked about the omer the last time, of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days. Keep in mind 50 days. To the day after the seventh Sabbath, when you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord, you shall, you shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two-tenths of an ephah. 
and they shall be of fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the Lord. And you shall offer with the bread seven lambs of the first year without blemish, one young bull and two rams. And they shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings as offerings made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of a goat of, of the goats as a sin offering and two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of a peace offering. The, the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall proclaim on the day that, that it is a holy convocation, which means it's a high Sabbath to them, to you. You shall do no customary work on it. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap, nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord, your God. Aren't you glad we don't have to go through all that sacrifice system right now? Man, you'd have to have goats and everything but pigs. You wouldn't have to worry about that, but you'd have to have goats and uh, sheep and uh, all kinds of things, rams. So, man, you'd, you'd have it. But anyway, thank God we don't have that anymore. Last week in our study of the Feast of First Fruits, we saw one of the unique things about that feast was that the instructions to the children of Israel <clears throat> from God to Moses included this statement. When you come into the land which I give to you and reap the harvest, that it was a feast that they would not be able to actually keep in the present wilderness situation, but was to be established and practiced after they conquered the land of Canaan and had fields to plant crops and reap the harvest. Unfortunately, due to their rebellion and refusal to enter the land of promise at Kadesh Barnea, that you can see that number, read that. I encourage you to read, go back and read Numbers 14. It tells all about that. This would, this would have to wait another 40 years. This, this same thing about that, the same thing applies to the Feast of Weeks as well, that in order for it to be fully celebrated, <coughs> excuse me, they would have to be established in the land. So a little more background information about this. The Feast of Weeks takes place 50 days after the week of, of the Feast of First Fruits. Remember, we talked about the Feast of First Fruits, which was the wave offering of the first and best sheaf or omer of the barley harvest. And see, we see Jesus as this human sheaf or omer, the first fruits of the resurrection. We talked about that. Go back and get that. And by the way, uh, only 13 showed up last week, so there's plenty of copies back there if you would like to pick one up on the way out. Uh, I'm glad to see we got a little bit bigger crowd tonight. Uh, I know a lot of people have been out for various things and sickness and what have you. But anyway, pick that up. I encourage you to pick it up and read it and uh, go through that again. In the passage we just read, the people are instructed now to start a count from the day after the Sabbath when the first fruits, for first fruits wave sheaf was presented and count seven Sabbaths for seven weeks or 49 days. And on the day after the seventh Sabbath, day 50, they were to offer a new grain offering. This was the end of the bar barley harvest and the beginning of the wheat harvest. <clears throat> And this is where this new grain offering would come from. So we're talking about the wheat harvest here. We've already been through the barley harvest. They're ongoing all the way through this, but it's wheat harvest is now in starting. The period of time between this feast and the feast of weeks, or talking about this feast would mean the week of the feast of first fruits, and the week of and the feast of weeks or feast of Pentecost is called the time a time of counting the omer. Each day they would proclaim the day. Like today is the first day of the Omer, today is the second day of the Omer, et cetera, or maybe something like today is day 16, 
two weeks and two days of the Omer. And when they were doing this, as they were doing this, the leader, of course, the dad, the father of the house, he was to speak a blessing each day for the 50 days uh, doing this as, we, as they counted. Today, today is six, day 16, two weeks and two days of the Omer, and then he would speak a blessing uh, over, that, over their, his family at that time. Or they would, some traditions also say that they would read out of uh, uh, Psalm 119, uh, a passage of Scripture, one of the sections out of that. And they had several traditional things that they did. The New Testament <coughs> rendering of this feast is Pentecost, which is Greek uh, for 50th. That's what Pentecost means. It means 50th, thus, or 50. Thus, we will see it in the New Testament as the Feast of Pentecost. We see it addressed in there. You know, the, the, the Old Testament was was uh, translated into Greek, I believe. Uh, it's called the Septuagint, I believe. And it was, it was translated about 300 B.C., uh, of course, I think, in that area. So it was, the Old Testament was completely, and so I think that's where they ended up translating that in the Greek because at that time, uh, the Greeks were all the rule in the world. But anyway, it was translated at that time. The feast takes place in the Jewish month of Sivan, 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 however you want to say it, which would be the May to June time frame in the Gregorian calendar. So it is still considered a spring feast. This feast day is also known as the Feast of Harvest. You can see that in Numbers. It's the same feast. They just here they're calling it the Feast of Harvest in Numbers 28 and the Day of First Fruits in Exodus 23, 16. And when I say Day of First Fruits, it's not... It's not the same as the Feast of uh, First Fruits. It's a different, uh, but it's, they were offering up basically the first fruits of the wheat harvest on the day of first fruits. Although this was a harvest feast, later when the Jews were scattered among the nations, the feast lost its primary significance as a harvest festival for obvious reasons and was celebrated as a memorial marking the giving of the law, the Torah, at Mount Sinai. Jewish sages have traditionally taught that God gave the Torah on the day of Pentecost. Tradition says the children of Israel were encamped at the base of Mount Sinai 50 days after leaving Egypt. Some commentators argue that they were encamped at the foot of Mount Sinai 50 days before Moses received the Ten Commandments from God. It's one of those, depends on which group you're talking about. The Hebrew word for weeks, Shavuot, speaks of origination, as in the beginning of the wheat harvest. Some, writer, some writings say the first Shavuot, the county of weeks, actually occurred at Mount Sinai and is considered and sometimes considered the day on which Judaism was born or originated. God had taken them out of Egypt and out of their bondage so that they could be his own treasured people, holy and separated from the pagan cultures around them. Matter of fact, there was some, I was reading some other things and after I got this put together, but they, uh, the, some of the, the Jewish tradition also considers this as their marriage day. In other words, this, this, this first Pentecost at Mount Sinai is considered the marriage where the Jewish people were actually married to the Lord at that time. It's interesting to think about that. Uh, so, the, uh, the, and so as we, <coughs> as we stated above, this feast is also known by its Greek name, Pentecost, which to us now symbolizes to us as believers now, it symbolizes the giving of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, which, is, which inaugurated the new covenant and the church age. So we will look at some of the comparisons or parallels we see in the Old Testament Feast of the Weeks and the New Testament Pentecost. Although you might say that they're one and the same in the nominal, in the nominal purpose, they're very different in outcome. Uh, 
The visual aid as seen in the old becomes the manifested reality of the new. And Jesus is the fulfillment of it all. So before we move on to the comparisons, let's look at a little bit of the detail that we might see in the original instructions concerning this feast, looking specifically at what it says in verses 17 through 20 in Leviticus 23. Let me give you a timeline before we read that, talking about this when we're saying, you know, it's a, it, was a, it was an agricultural feast because this was going to be an agricultural uh, culture when they get, come into the promised land. But, and I suppose they, I think what it, in studying, what, what happened is they celebrated this feast when they come into the land. They celebrated the Feast of Weeks uh, all through their time in the land, all through the temple season or the time that they had temple, uh, actually had temples uh, even through the time of Jesus until about 70 AD when, when actually the, the temple was destroyed and uh, the Jews were scattered all over the face of the earth at that time. So that, you know, after that point when Jews were coming together to Jerusalem for this feast, to celebrate this feast and to renew their uh, dedication to the, to the Torah, uh, that's when it actually become more known as the as the uh, the feast of Pentecost or the or the uh, it was celebrating the 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 uh, giving of the law uh, from God, uh, so anyway you can you kind of know an idea of what what's going on there. But in Le- Leviticus twenty three, uh, cha- uh, seventeen through twenty, he said, it says, "You shall bring from your dwelling two wave loaves of two tenths of an ephah." We read this already, but I just I want to focus on this just a minute. They shall be a fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the Lord. And you shall offer with the bread seven lambs of the first year without blemish, one young bull and two rams. <clears throat> they shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offerings and their drink offerings. Now listen to this. The, uh, burnt offerings, keep that in mind. If you hadn't, if it's not, I, I might have left that on your page. Is that on y'all's page, this passage? I might have left that on there without it being taken off. But anyway, keep them in mind, burnt offerings, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats as a sin offering and two male offerings, two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of a peace offering. So we have the burnt offering, we have the sin offering, and we have the peace offering all at the same time uh, in regards to these two wave loaves. The priest shall wave them with the, broad, uh, with the bread of the uh, first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. Remember, this is the wheat harvest, and on this occasion, the children of Israel were not simply to bring the first fruits of the wheat to the temple as they brought the first fruits of the barley at the first uh, feast of uh, first fruits. Remember, they brought uh, uh, an omer's worth of uh, the barley, which was, like we said before, is a half a gallon, an omer. That's what they brought. That was the very first and best uh, uh, of the of the uh, barley harvest, so that's what they brought. Now they're bringing, but now they're bringing two uh, loaves of bread. These two loaves were specifically commanded to be made with fine flour and baked with leaven. <clears throat> Verse 17, and it was to be used as a, va- a wave offering for the people, an offering of thanksgiving. These two loaves, well, these two loaves, however, could not be eaten until after the full ceremony was completed. You can see this in Leviticus 23:14 and could not be placed on the altar due to its leaven content. Remember, uh, leaven was a uh, symbolic of sin, so they could not, anything with symbolic of sin could not be placed on the altar, and that, that, so those wave loaves could not be placed on the altar at that time. They had to be waved and then moved away. In addition to the wave offering, it required a burnt offering of seven lambs without blemish, a young bull and two rams, a sin offering of one kid of goats, and two male lambs as a peace offering. 
So what do we see here? There's, it's too much because, I mean, if I were to go through and, and talk about the, the offerings and how many, there were, there's five different types of offerings, but this is covering three of the offerings that were required, which was a burn offering, a sin offering, and a peace offering. And so I'm just going to give you the real short of it right here. There's not much to cover. There's too much to cover here about the detail in the three offerings that accompanied the wave offering. But in short, the burn offering represented the giving of yourself completely to God, burnt as in consumed. That's what burnt offering means. The burnt offering was totally consumed. Seven, uh, meaning completion. That's the seven, uh, seven uh, lambs that were, or rams that were given at that time with him. And then the sin, the sin offering, the kid goat as atonement for your sin, uh, and the peace offering, two male lambs as a celebration of communion with God. Do we see Jesus in this when we see all that? Of course we do. This is the Old Testament visual, visual aid, the dress rehearsal we have said before, the coming real events. All three represent the shelter and covering of the blood. There is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. See, all these were animals were, were, were slain, uh, innocent animals without blemish were slain and sacrificed to go along with these two wave loaves. You'll see some significance with that here shortly. Symbolically, the Feast of Weeks was pointing, listen to this, to, was pointing to the coming of the Holy Spirit <clears throat> and the birthday of the church. The Son of God rose from the grave on first fruits, the first resurrection. <clears throat> he then spent 40 days with his disciples in post-resurrection ministry, teaching them, showing them that all things concerning himself is written in the law and the prophets. Remember the story, the account of the, the, on the road to Emmaus where he explained to them and opened up their eyes about everything that had been written about him in the law and the prophets. And after 40 days, uh, you can refer back to Acts 1-3 in this. I didn't capture that scripture. But Jesus informed them that this was necessary. This is, this is at the first part of Acts. And he says, inform them that this was that it was necessary that he would leave them and ascend to his Father in heaven in order to apply the benefits, benefits of his once and for all sacrifice. However, he told his disciples that they would not be left abandoned and comfortless. He would send them his Holy Spirit, who would come alongside to help in his absence. Keep in mind, another thing to keep in mind here, you know, they've just got through celebrating Passover, right? And now they're, going, they're the process of counting the Omer. They're the, the, all the Jews in, in, uh, in Jerusalem at the time now are counting the Omer. If they left, they're still counting the Omer. They'll be back in 50 days from the time Passover was celebrated and, uh, and, and marching on, they'd, they'd be back. So I'm trying to give you a time frame here. Remember, it says that he was with them for 40 days uh, after, after his resurrection. John 14, uh, 16 and 17 says, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. That's, the, that's when he was telling the, his disciples at, when they were in the upper room and he was teaching them, that's what he was telling them. You can see this also in those reference scriptures there, John, Luke, Acts 1-8, more on the helper and the Holy Spirit. You can read those. That's what Bible school is all about. You do have some homework every once in a while, so you need to go back and don't just take this home with you, I mean, just, and throw it on the shelf. Read it, the scriptures again for yourself. That's, where you, that's the way you learn. You do a little digging on yourself, I promise you, you'll learn uh, more and more. The di disciples were commanded to stay in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, came. That's, that's what he called it in Acts uh, 1 and 4. And they knew exactly how long they would have to wait. 
because, like I said, they, all, they were all there for that purpose, to celebrate the Passover and then to wait uh, for the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. And how long they would have to wait, the coming of the Holy Spirit would occur on the next Jewish feast day. As one of the required pilgrimages for all the Jewish males, there would be Jews from a lot of different countries to celebrate the completion of the harvest season. Of course, this feast was none other than Shavuot, the one we're talking about, the Feast of Weeks. The disciples waited as they were, as they were commanded. However, their wait was not long, only 10 days. And as they gathered in the upper room in Jerusalem, the Spirit of God, the promise of the Father, descended upon those first century believers. Let's read about that account in Acts 2, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, <clears throat> they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. They were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, not all of these who speak, not, not, are not all of these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia. Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, they're full of new wine. See, I told you, you know, that the Jews were scattered after A.D. 70, but actually they had been scattered on a couple of other occasions before, you know, in the captivity, like when they were captured and, and uh, taken to Babylon. Not all of them come back uh, to uh, Jerusalem at that time. The Assyrians had taken some of them away. They were, they were scattered in a lot of different places. So that's why you, you have Jews all over the known world. <laughs> all over the known world at the time, and that's where they were coming from, these different places. And, of course, they spoke different languages. They were still Jews, but they still spoke different languages. Now, one of the things we see here is that God's timing of the upper room encounter is impeccable because devout Jewish men from all corners of the known civilized world had returned to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Weeks. Now, they had become witnesses of the outpouring. Now, they had become witnesses of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on these faithful believers gathered here. See, that's, it's all in God's plan. He wanted everyone to see that outpouring happen, and it happened when the, when the Holy Spirit fell upon them, uh, on the faithful believers gathered here. Note in verse 11, it says, They heard them speaking in their own tongues the wonderful works of God. They did not know exactly what was going on, going on but perhaps some may have called to mind the passage about Joel 2.28. Remember, it said they were devout men, so they knew Scripture. Joel 2.28 says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pray out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And you know what? It says I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. I think we'll see that a little bit more when we talk about the wave loaves here and what that is, uh, is uh, uh, signifying to us. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit that day was happening, listen to this, was happening at the exact assigned time, the third hour or 9 a.m., that the priests in the temple were offering the two baked loaves as a wave offering to the Lord. 
And see, most commentators, that's a, that was a, they were offering that, those, the, those wheat loaves, baked loaves of, of, with leaven to the Lord. Most commentators believe these two loaves of leavened bread were a foreshadowing of the time when Messiah would take both Jew and Gentile to be one in him, representing the first fruits of the church. Didn't I tell you, we talked about this, where this is all, when they're offered up to the first fruits, it's always looking forward to the rest of the harvest that's coming. Remember, God is speaking to the harvest to come. Consequently, the apostle Peter preached that that very day, and 3,000 were converted and baptized. There may have been Gentiles in that crowd. It's not stated, but we do know that the ministry went forth to the Gentiles through Philip preaching to the Samaritans and then to the uh, Ethiopian eunuch. And then Peter in his dream and an encounter with Cornelius, uh, the Roman centurion, where his whole household was saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit. Uh, Peter said this, and this kind of sums it up right here. He says in Acts 10, 34, then Peter opened his mouth. After all, he witnessed all this. And he says, he opened his mouth and said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. What he's saying is God does not show partiality between the Jews and the Gentiles because see, Cornelius, when he preached to him in his household, he's a Gentile. The apostle Paul writes about this subject in these passages in Ephesians 2. Keep in mind, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus who are Gentiles. Ephesians 2, 11 through 18, this is what it says. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off, have been brought together, what brought near by the blood of Christ. In 14, for he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you. That's right, there's that word again, peace, to you that you were afar off and to those who were near. For, though, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. See, he's talking to Gentiles, and he's saying both the Jews and the Gentiles have access by one spirit to the Father. That's where we come in unity. So once again, we see the two loaves baked with leaven, as representing the Jews and the Gentiles. Leaven, as we've studied before, was often shown symbolically as sin. Both Jew and Gentile are full of sin, thus the leaven. Both needed a Savior, but now believers of all nations, Jew and Gentile, as seen in the two loaves, made from the same fine flour, are are united as one in the body of Christ. And see, that fine flour, one thing I forgot, I didn't bring up earlier, but fine flour is also a, a symbolic of Jesus because it's fine flour without any coarseness or anything in, the, in, in there to show any roughness or anything. Fine flour, and of course, fine flour is what is used to, make, to bake bread, which is the bread of life, which who is Jesus. He is the bread of life. Here's the deal when we're talking about the two, and we're talking about both are sinners. It says, here's the deal. Sin is not a race or a nationality thing. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here's what I want you to catch and underline this. This is probably a good thing to keep in mind. You are not a sinner because you sin, but you sin 
because you are a sinner. Do you understand that? It's almost confusing, but you get, if you read it two or three times, you'll get it. You're not a sinner because you sin, but you sin because you are a sinner. Amen? It's all in the nature inherited from the first Adam, which was the sin nature. We all got it from him. It's kind of like a contagious thing. We all got it in the blood. But the second Adam, Jesus, has given us the new nature by faith in his shed blood. Jesus fulfilled the essence of this feast by ascending to the Father, being accepted as the first fruit offering of the harvest, and then fulfilling his promise to his faithful by sending the helper or comforter, the spirit of truth, the spirit of power. So how does this contrast with the, with the giving of the law? And remember this, I, I, let, me, let me say this. They always say it when they say they're celebrating the giving of the law. It's because it only happened once. The giving of the law happened at Mount, Mount Sinai. It's not a celebration of the receiving of the law because when they give the law, the law is there, but it's up to each individual to receive the law. It's just like our salvation. The blood of Jesus was given for us but we have to receive it. It's an individual choice, and that's what it was there. So they say it's the giving of the law. So here, so I got some things here. I want to extracurricular things I want to cover here. I think I got enough time to do it. Yeah, we're good, doing good. Okay. So how does this contrast with the giving of the of the law, which they call the Torah? As we go back and look at the significance of the giving of the law, why was it necessary, and what was it to accomplish? The law was given to them at Mount Sinai in the third month after they left Egypt. <clears throat> the children of Israel were free now, albeit in the wilderness, but they were no longer under the rule or law of Pharaoh of the Pharaohs in Egypt. They were basically unrestrained, able to do whatever they thought was right, as long as they were under the Egyptian system, even though uh, tyrannical and burdensome, they had to live and work in and under structured governing system of rules, laws, regulations that kept them in line to some degree. There was none of that now. The giving of the law to Moses from God gave them the boundaries to live within, the restraint they needed to preserve the people's moral latitude, and basically to let them know how far they could go, and to show them that even at their very best, they were sinful and would not be able to keep the law completely and would, keep, would need God's help, his provision, faith, divine intervention to do so. After all, a train needs rails and a river must have banks. There has to be some boundaries. The law, law shows us what our heart's condition is. The law was God's standard of achieving righteousness in the flesh. Achievement of anything can be measured, but only if you have a standard, a goal, a finish line, a target, a destination to show that you have measured up. The law showed the people that the standard was too high to achieve on our own, and God made provision through the sacrificial system to cover the failures of individuals in the nation. And I say that to say to cover. It only covered. It didn't wipe it out. It covered. In the reality, this also applies to us today. If we are honest with ourselves, we have all broken all the commandments sometime or other. We have missed the mark, but thanks be to God for his provision. See, when Jesus came, he did not do away with the law. He fulfilled it. He is our propitiation. There's that word again. But you need to, you need to look at that word. Sometimes propitiation, it kind of stirs you up to say, dig a little deeper and see what that means. But it simply means he's the only one who can appease and satisfy the wrath of God towards sinful man and bring us into reconciliation with God. He is, God, is what God has provided for us that we might be able to draw near to him. He was the only true and worthy sacrifice. This is what we call grace. Law, law is not an adversity with grace. Law actually works with grace. Law shows us what is wrong 
with us in grace shows us how to get well. You can read more about that in Ephesians 2.8. All, all, all of you know those scriptures should have those memorized. You know, for grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Read those and, and learn them and uh, memorize them. But anyway, we could not live out the law in our lives in the flesh, and we can't do it under grace without the power and the help of the Holy Spirit. So before I go on to Jeremiah and that passage there, I want to just do a, I want to do a few parallels. When we're talking about Pentecost, what happened at Pentecost and what happened on Mount Sinai, here's a, here's a few comparisons that might help you understand why they call why they now celebrate uh, the 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 uh, giving of the Torah and and how it parallels the giving of the Holy Spirit or Pentecost at uh, at uh, Jerusalem. <clears throat> The Israelites gathered at Mount Sinai. The disciples came to Mount Zion. So there's two different mounts there we're talking about. They're, they're gathered at a mountain, a high place. The first Pentecost was the birth of Judaism. The Pentecost in Acts 2 was the birth of the New Covenant Church. At Mount Sinai, the Israelites were sanctified for three days in preparation for God's visitation. In the upper room, the disciples tarried in prayer for about a week before the Holy Spirit arrived. The fire of God fell on Mount Sinai. Cloven tongues of fire appeared on the disciples. You know, one of the readings of the, uh, of you, if you read the writings of the sages of, of, of the Jews, they actually said when God descended on Mount Sinai and he spoke, you know, that the mountain was totally consumed with fire, lightning, and, and uh, clouds, and, and, uh, and thunder, and all that. It was a very scary sight. I'm, I'm kind of supposing it's more like you being right up front and close to a volcano that's erupting and all that's going on. But they said, the, the early sages say as in their writings what they call the, uh, the midrash or the things that they wrote, uh, part of the oral uh, handing things down. They said when God spoke at the time of Mount Sinai that they, they, they could, his voice was so loud they couldn't understand it, but they could see it going forth as fire. Can you, can you imagine that? I mean, that, that had to be a sight. I just thought that was interesting, and that goes along with a lot of the scriptures that we see. Matter of fact, at the first Pentecost occurred when God consumed Mount Sinai with fire and thundered his Ten Commandments to Israel. Incidentally, when God spoke to a man, Moses, he lit a bush on fire. When he spoke to a nation, Israel, he lit a mountain on fire. And Hebrews 12, 29 says, for our God is a consuming fire. Think about that. So going on, he said, God's audible voice spoke from Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments. God spoke through the disciples at Pentecost, the disciples via tongues, the wonderful works of God. Supernatural signs indicated God's presence on Mount Sinai, a cloud, thunder, lightning, fire, smoke. In Jerusalem, they heard the sound from heaven as a mighty wind, the breath of God, when the Spirit filled the house. An earthquake shook Mount Sinai with the glory of God. The disciples staggered under the influence of the Spirit, and bystanders thought they were drunk on new wine. Remember, I told you that uh, Peter had to defend that. He said, no, they're not drunk. He said, it's only the third hour. Remember, I told you that that's the time when the, when the, the priests were waving the, the, the two wave loaves. They couldn't be drunk at that time. It's too early in the day to be drinking that early. At Mount Sinai, the Mosaic Covenant was established, written on tablets of stone. <clears throat> in Acts 2, the New Covenant was established, written on the tables of their heart. In Mount Sinai, the Levitical priesthood was instituted after the golden calf idolatry. At Pentecost, the priesthood of all believers became reality. At Mount Sinai, God gave Moses the blueprint for the tabernacle. At Pentecost, God gave the apostles for the, ch the plan for the church. 
At Mount Sinai, 3,000 rebels who worshiped the golden calf were killed. At Pentecost, 3,000 repentant sinners were saved when Peter preached. And at Mount Sinai, the law was given. In the upper room, the Holy Spirit was given. So I want to go on with Jeremiah uh, 31. This is prophesied in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and 33, through 33. The days are, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in that day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them. Remember I told you they were married at that time? My, that, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Talking about the coming Pentecost. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my, my people. Now the law is on our hearts and minds by the indwelling influence and conviction of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. One more scripture I want to give you. I wrote as I was thinking about this. In Colossians 1.18, I think this is important because I believe I, this, is my, this is my opinion. I, I don't know if I hadn't seen anything else written on this. But, you know, we're talking about the, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their heart, hearts. Colossians 1.18 says, uh, and, and Paul is writing, and he's talking about Jesus. And he said, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn born from the dead, in all things, and that in all things he may have preeminence. Now, that preeminence is a word that uh, comes basically from the, from the Greek uh, root word of protos, which means the original, the first, the one before. Uh, and the reason I say that, I, wanna, I, I just want to bring this out about the heart. He said he's going to write it on the heart. I believe Jesus, if he is preeminent in all things, I believe he was the first, of course, he was the first God-man, the only God-man, to come, and I believe he was the first one that demonstrated the law being written on the human heart. He had a heart of flesh, and I believe if he was preeminent in all things, then I believe he is the one, and that's the only way he was able to live a, a sinless life is because he had that law written on his heart. He knew all the law, and he knew all, it by, all of it by heart. I'm just throwing that out for observation. You can take it or you can uh, be with it whatever you want to, but I believe that has some significance in there when you think if he's preeminent in all things. Anyway, moving on. The two baked loaves ultimately represent the body of Christ, Christ the true bread from heaven, the church on earth in unity. This unity is validated by the presence of the Holy Spirit in all believers, all true believers. At Pentecost, when God sent his Holy Spirit upon all who believe, this is the pledge and assurance from him that we are his and he is coming back for us. We are a part of the future harvest. He did not leave us helpless. No, he left us with the full power of the Holy Spirit to be able to to live our lives in a manner that would give him glory and honor, a life that can be lived in holiness only because the Holy Spirit lives within us and bears witness to us and convicts us when we go in the wrong direction, a life that has the power to witness to others of the wonderful works of God, just like those men that saw and were witnesses to the, to the things that happened in the upper room. We can be witnesses to others of the wonderful works of God. Matthew 9, 37 through 38 says, And he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, praise the Lord of the, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. See, the Feast of Weeks is manifested in the Holy Spirit-filled church. We are living in the present interval called the dispensation of grace. In other words, grace started at that time when Jesus, uh, when, when we become the church, the church age, and we are laborers sent into his harvest. 
But remember, every harvest season comes to an end, so we need to work till the end. Okay, got it? Understand what we are? We're part of the, the ones that are going out for the harvest, and that's what the Holy Spirit come upon us for. Is that, That's part of our job. So we'll end with this. Just as the spring feast, ending with the Feast of Weeks, are portrayed as dress rehearsals of the Messiah's first coming, the fall feast, which we'll see coming up, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of uh, the Day of Atonement, and uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. They are all dress rehearsals for his second coming. Are you ready? Are you ready? All right. Six minutes to spare. We're doing good. And I still got a voice. Praise the Lord. All right, let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you, Father, that you're, you're here in this house, Father, and that your word is true. Father, we thank you that we can lean on your word. We can study on your word. We can learn from your word and see the things, what our charge is, what we're supposed to do, Father. We thank you that you are the Lord of the harvest. And, Father, as you have sent us out, Father, I just pray that we're faithful and would we would be faithful witnesses to do the things that we're supposed to do according to what you've written in these things, Father, that we would go out and be part of the, uh, of the ongoing harvest. We would be the laborers in this harvest that is coming. Father, help us to understand your word. Father, help us to believe and walk in it every day. Help us to walk in the strength of your word that we would do the things according to you, to w- what you have written. And Father, I thank you that you've written this law in our hearts, that your spirit indwells us each and every, and every one of us. And Father, help us to be empowered in everything that we do by the spirit, by the, your Holy Spirit. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. We want to thank all of you who give to our ministries here at AOL Church. It's because of you that all of this is possible. You can give now by clicking the link below. And if you haven't already, subscribe and share this message. It helps us reach more people and share the gospel through you. Be sure to stay connected to us through our Church Center app, our website, arenaoflifechurch.org, and follow us on social media like Facebook and Instagram. May the Lord bless you and keep you. His face shine upon you, be gracious to you, and give you peace. Thanks again for listening. Go and make a difference today.